You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Uh, Book of Jude. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me, if you would. It was 2019 that I was here last. Lots changed, obviously, in the last couple of years. Um, Ushers are handing out Bibles. If you need a Bible, you can go ahead and raise your hand, it looks like, and they'd be happy to walk one over to you. The book of Jude, though, is not hard to find. It's a second to last book. So find the book of Revelation and then just go to the left a little bit and you will be there. I'd like to draw your attention to verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, I'll put it on the screen for you as well. And then we'll go ahead and pray uh, one more time. Notice what Jude writes in verse 3. Hold on. Now my remote's disconnected? Okay. Interesting. There we go. Beloved. I love that he addresses the church that way. You're beloved by God. And he knows that. And he's reminding you of that. He says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation... I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we're diving into your word now, God, we ask for your blessing on this time. We pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to our hearts and our minds. We ask that you would encourage our hearts and strengthen our faith. We pray that you would use this time to help us to be better equipped to answer skeptics and our friends who have questions and objections about the Bible. Lord, bless this time we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever tried to talk to a friend, maybe a coworker, about God or your faith in Jesus only to have your objections shot out of the sky with a... a, Did I say your objection? your comment, whatever it happens to be, about God or your faith in Jesus, they, they, they're ready with an arsenal of conversation-halting objections like there's no good evidences for God. Or they say religions, including Christianity, are responsible for most of the world's wars and suffering and atrocities. Or the God of the Old Testament commanded the Israelites to commit genocide. I mean, how could you believe in a God like that? Or they say the Bible condones slavery. It oppresses women. It promotes hatred of homosexuals. Ever run into any of these objections? If you've tried to share the gospel with people in the 21st century, these are the kinds of objections and criticisms that Christians are hearing. Question for you. When you bump into these kinds of objections or criticisms, do you feel in those moments that you're well equipped to contend for the faith as we're told to do here in the book of Jude. It seems to me that a lot of Christians don't feel adequately equipped to contend for the faith. What does Jude mean though when he says to contend for the faith? Well, let's break it down here for a moment. The word contend literally in the Greek means to fight. 
The word earnestly means seriously or intensely. And that phrase, the faith, refers to the whole body of revealed truth contained in the Bible. So Jude, writing words here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, instructs Christians to be ready to put up a strong fight for the truth of God's word. Now, don't misunderstand Jude. He's not encouraging you to get into fist fights with people. Okay? Now, we're instructed in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, so far as it's possible with you that we're, we're to live peaceably with people. Jude is talking primarily about countering the errors, the misconceptions, the false teachings about God, not with fists and guns, but with truth, with truth. God's people aren't to sit on the sidelines while God's truth is being undermined and attacked. We're to lovingly, boldly put up a strong fight by proclaiming and, when necessary, defending the truth. Now, this doesn't mean that you need to have a megaphone and stand on a street corner and be obnoxious. Um, Or that you need to have a seminary degree. I think a lot of Christians think, well, I'm not even, you know, I'm not well equipped. I I didn't go to Bible college. I didn't go to seminary and they kind of excuse themselves from the the truth war because they don't have a seminary degree or something. But you can contend for the faith today over a friendly cup of coffee at Starbucks with a friend. You can contend for the faith as easily today as posting a quote or an article on social media. You You don't even have to write the article. You can just go to our website and hit share. Or you post a quote by C.S. Lewis or something. There's a lot I think that Christians could do to step up our efforts to contend for the faith. And boy, does our world need it. Satan, the father of lies, has successfully deceived millions of people today to believe all kinds of things about God and the Bible that are not true. And we see the effects of this on our culture. Anyone notice that our country is going downhill? (laughs) Well, you know, I think some of the blame is to be laid at our feet. We haven't been getting the gospel out, and we haven't taken the time to seriously even equip ourselves to contend for the faith, and then we wonder why the the country's falling apart. Well, to help all of us be a little bit better prepared to contend for the faith, what I'd like to do this morning is just to offer some concise responses to several of the popular objections that atheists and skeptics are bringing up today about God and the Bible. The first objection I'd like to address for a few minutes concerns the topic of slavery in the Bible. It's not uncommon to hear atheists say that the Bible condones slavery and that only evil, selfish men would ever concoct a book like that. Well, how might we respond to that? Well, when someone brings this up with me, I like to point out to them that slavery was never part of God's original plan for humanity, and it wouldn't exist today if it weren't for mankind's sin. The Bible says very clearly to love your neighbor as yourself in both the Old and New Testaments. We're also instructed to regard one another as more important than ourselves. 
Question for you. How could slavery ever even get off the ground, let alone flourish, if we were all loving and treating one another the way God wants us to? A loving person doesn't kidnap people and then lock them up and force them to work without pay. That's terribly cruel. And the biblical writers knew that. Kidnapping humans is a sin that carried the death penalty in the Old Testament. Exodus 21 verse 16, for example, says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. There would probably be a lot fewer abductions today if kidnappers were swiftly tried, condemned, and put to death. But of course, we've decided that we don't care what God has to say about the death penalty. And now we wonder why the sex slave trade and those kinds of things are out of control. We're reaping the consequences. Another verse that made it clear kidnapping people and forcing them to be slaves is wrong is Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. It says, if anyone kidnaps a fellow Israelite and treats him as a what? Slave or sells him, the kidnapper must die. In this way, God says, you'll purge the evil from among you. You don't want that thing, you don't want all that going on? These people need to be put to death. Pretty clear. So the Old Testament made it clear that these activities were wrong. What about the New Testament, though? Does it take a softer stand on the topic of slavery? No. In the New Testament, enslavers, men-stealers, or slave traders, depending on your translation, are condemned alongside murderers in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. You can look it up sometime. But that leaves us with the question, then, why do some people then believe that the Bible endorses slavery? Well, I think it's because the Bible does contain a handful of verses instructing God's people, the Jews, the Israelites, on how they were to treat their servants. In biblical times, people could sell themselves to be servants. You weren't allowed to kidnap and sell someone else, but you could sell yourself to pay off debts. This is discussed in Leviticus chapter 25 and elsewhere. And the practice was very common. So for the servants' sakes, God gave the Israelites instructions regarding the treatment of their servants. The instructions were actually given to protect and help the servants, not harm them or keep them down. For example, Exodus 20 verse 10 said that servants were to have every seventh day of the week off. It says there that the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant. They were to enjoy a day of rest just like everyone else in the family. Deuteronomy 23 said to never mistreat one of these people. In verse 15 and 16, it says, You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. Pause there for a moment. So imagine yourself in ancient Israel, back in biblical times, you're out in the field, you know, working on the wheat harvest, and some guy comes straggling into your town. He's on the run from a bad situation where he was being mistreated as a servant. And now he shows up in your town. What were you supposed to do? Send him back to his a bad situation? No. Mistreat him? No. Take advantage of him? No. The Bible says he shall live with you in your midst 
in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns where it pleases him, you shall not mistreat him. There was never to be mistreatment of these people. And Paul reiterates this in the New Testament in verses like Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. He said, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So, as you can see, these instructions were given to ensure that servants were treated justly and fairly. The Bible never encouraged or endorsed the horrific kind of slavery that involved the kidnapping, selling, and mistreating of humans. Well, Charlie, the God of the Old Testament commanded genocide. The wiping out of the Canaanite people in the book of Joshua, a loving God would never command such a thing. When someone brings this up with you, you might ask the person this question. Have you read the Old Testament passages regarding the Canaanites? Often they haven't. They've just heard about the supposed genocide. If they do say they've read the book of Joshua, you might ask them this question. Do you recall what the Canaanites were doing that brought God's judgment on them? I can assure you of this. The answer will almost always be no. So you might just humbly, lovingly bring that person up to speed on what the Canaanites were doing at the time of Joshua. The Bible tells us that they were an exceedingly wicked people who were sacrificing their young children to their god Molech, having them burned alive. The Bible also says they were committing incest with their children adultery, polygamy, bestiality, witchcraft, and a variety of other abominable customs. So the Canaanites had become a dangerous threat, not only to their posterity and their neighbors, but to the Israelites. And so God determined that the Canaanites' time on his planet was up. And so he sent in the Israelites to put a stop to the wickedness, just as he would later send the Assyrians and the Babylonians in to put a stop to the wickedness when the Jewish people began engaging in the exact same activities. Peter pointed out in the book of Acts that God is not one to show partiality or favoritism. He dealt with the Jews just like he did with the Canaanites centuries earlier. Friends, God created the earth, as you know, and all of its inhabitants, and so he has the right to do whatever he deems best with his creation. It's his planet. All creation belongs to him. Think back with me to World War II. I think most of us believe that the Allied powers, which of course included the United States, had the right and even God's approval to go to war against Nazi Germany and Japan to put a stop to the great evils they were committing. When President Donald Trump came into office in 2017, he authorized our military to wipe out ISIS. Remember them? Remember some of the terrible things they were doing? Burning people alive in cages? Were you in approval of our president sending in a military force? I think most Americans were. Well, this raises a question. If human governments have the right to send in a military force to put a stop to evildoers, doesn't God have the right? Surely he does. 
If our non-Christian friends who are critical of the Bible had lived at the time of Joshua and were aware of the great atrocities going on in the land of Canaan, I think many of them would have been in approval of God's intervention. I do find it a bit odd that atheists commonly say today, if God exists, he should intervene and put a stop to evil and suffering. In the book of Joshua, we have an example of God putting a stop to some of the evil. And atheists like to point to that book and say, loving God would never do such a thing. I don't know. It it seems to me that no matter what God does, people who want nothing to do with him can find an angle to find fault. Well, the skeptic says, surely God doesn't exist. If he did, he'd just appear to us in a public setting and prove it to the world. (laughs) People who raise this objection overlook the fact that God has already done this when he came to the earth in the person of Jesus. He raised the dead, healed cripples, opened the eyes of the blind, proved he was God in the flesh. And what happened? Did everyone repent and believe in him? No, they dragged him away and nailed him to a cross. One of the reasons God doesn't appear to people today is because he knows that wouldn't change their hearts. And God knows that he's already provided enough evidence for his existence to those who truly want to know him. Psalm chapter 19 mentions that. Romans chapter 1 deals with that. Acts chapter 14 addresses that as well. What evidence is there for God, someone might ask? I'm glad you asked. How about the fine-tuning of the universe? Or the mind-boggling complexity of living organisms or the information encoded into DNA. Or hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in the Bible or the historical evidence for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Just for starters. I agree with Norman Geisler, a great theologian. He went home to be with the Lord a couple years ago. He wrote this though. He said, God has provided enough evidence in this life to convince anyone willing to believe. Yet he has also left some ambiguity so as not to compel the unwilling. In this way, God gives us the opportunity to either love him or reject him without violating our freedom. I agree with that. I also concur with J.P. Moreland, a professor at Biola University up the coast. He said something similar to Geyser. He said, God maintains a delicate balance between keeping his existence sufficiently evident so people will know he's there and yet hiding his presence enough so that people who want to choose to ignore him can do it. This way, their choice of destiny is really free. God is so wise. He maintains that perfect balance. Just enough evidence there for anyone who really wants to know him. Well, the skeptic says the Bible was written by men. It's not trustworthy. I'm a little astonished at how often I bump into this line. People kind of think they can get rid of the Bible in any kind of conversation by just pointing out to me that it was written by men. As though Christians don't know that. Of course the Bible was written by men. Um, We believe it was men who were guided by God as they pinned down its words. But they think that they can just alert me to the fact that it was written by men and then just conclude that it's not trustworthy because of that. Well, when they say that, I like to lovingly point out to them that their conclusion does not follow from their premise. 
Just because something was written by men doesn't mean it's not trustworthy. If what men write is not trustworthy, then we'd have to throw out encyclopedias, dictionaries, automobile manuals, (laughs) everything the IRS sends us, written by men, throw it out. (laughs) Can't trust it. (laughs) That sounds kind of nice, actually, but... Uh, Men are capable of communicating truthfully, but especially when they have God's help, as we know the biblical authors did. Many today who think that the Bible is just a compilation of folklore and legend overlook the fact that there are several lines of evidence for the Bible's trustworthiness. Here I'm thinking of hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, thousands of archaeological discoveries, the Bible's incredible internal harmony. Ancient historical confirmation in the records of the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans that have verified several different details in the Bible. Uh, Different scientific discoveries that have verified uh, details in the Bible. I have a whole hour-long presentation on that. Maybe we'll do that someday. Uh, The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls back in 1947 helped to assure us that we have accurate copies of the ancient texts that the Israelites and the early church used. Uh, the writings of Flavius Josephus, a first century Roman historian who validates several details in the New Testament. When someone tells me that the Bible is a compilation of myth and folklore, I just think, you don't know what you're talking about. You, ha- you obviously haven't done any serious investigation into the evidences that are out there that point in the other direction. Well, all right, the skeptic says, but after the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian in AD 312, the Roman Empire took control of the Bible and tampered with its contents to better control the people. If someone tells you that, you might ask them this question, how did you come to that conclusion? Let me me just back up since it's second service. I know I've got an extra minute second service. I think a lot of Christians make a strategic error when a skeptic says something like this. They go into defensive mode and, and they immediately disagree with a statement like that. Well, then you've just shifted the burden of proof to yourself. Now you're trying to prove that he's wrong. Keep the burden of proof on the person making the claim. He's not even asking a question. He's making a claim. And so the way I like to do that is I just like to ask them questions like, well, what evidence do you have that that's the case? That often just alerts them to the fact that they don't know what they're talking about. Okay, they're, they're, they're just making up stuff or that they really don't have any good reasons why I should take their, their uh, claim seriously. And so that's what I'm suggesting you do. Someone makes a claim like this or they make this specific claim. I like to just say, well, how did you come to that conclusion? In other words, what evidence led you there? If you'll ask that question, you will often get a blank stare. Why? Because there isn't a shred of evidence that the Roman Empire tampered with even a single book in the Bible, let alone the contents of the entire Bible. And the ancient handwritten manuscript copies of the Bible that predate the time of Constantine prove this to be the case. What do I mean? Well, we know what the Old and New Testament said before Constantine was even born around 280 AD, and when we compare the Bible we have and use today 
to those ancient manuscript copies of the Bible, we see that it says the same thing I said all the way back in the first, second, and third centuries. If you could use some help defending the trustworthiness of the Bible, a couple of my books out there in the courtyard can help you with that. Scrolls and Stones and uh, Archaeological Evidence for the Bible. I dive deeper into all of that. Another objection I've been hearing more lately has to do with the size of the universe. If you say that the universe is so vast, it's foolish to think a God built a universe billions of light years across just to have a personal relationship with you. In other words, it's absurd to think that God would create all of these other galaxies and stars and planets if the focus of his love was really just right here on our planet. Well, in response to that, I would first note that the enormity of something has absolutely no bearing on whether or not God exists, for God could have several good reasons for creating the universe the way he did, including the knowledge that his creatures would find a sky full of stars quite beautiful. That could be sufficient reason right there. In reality, the enormity of the universe proves to be more of a problem for the atheistic viewpoints. Why do I say that? Well, the world's leading atheistic authors and philosophers believe that every star, planet, and galaxy in the cosmos sprang into existence from what Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking said was literally nothing. Friend, that requires an enormous amount of faith. They, they, they accuse you of having blind faith? When was the last time anyone anywhere in the history of mankind saw nothing do anything? <laughs> what is nothing? Nothing is no thing. Break the word in half, right? No thing. No thing can't do anything. It can't see, smell, it, it, let alone create an ant. Let alone create a, a universe with billions of stars. Christians think it's more reasonable to conclude that the stars point to the existence of an incredibly powerful creator. We agree with David, who penned these words in Psalm chapter 19. He said, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. So we believe that the galaxies and the stars are an evidence that God exists. Now, of course, if the atheist was God, maybe he or she would have created a tiny little planet with no stars. <laughs> no galaxies. No other planets. But the true and living God decided to create a massive universe full of billions of stars and galaxies for us to look up at and be in awe of. And aren't you glad that he did? I take the trash out every night. It's one of the highlights of my day. <laughs> You're laughing, but I'm sure it's serious. I've got five kids inside the house, so it's a little chaotic. When I can go outside for a couple of minutes and just take my time. No noise. <laughs> I love to look up at the stars. I mean, they continue to blow me away every night. They, they don't get old. They're, it's just amazing to think of how big they are. Do you know more than a million planet Earths could fit inside our sun? And that's just one star in the Milky Way galaxy. They, they blow me away. They remind me of the, the greatness of our God. You know, if God had made a tiny universe, 
with no other stars and planets. I can just hear atheists complaining and saying, well, you know, if God was really such a great and powerful God, you know, he should have made a massive universe with a whole bunch of other stuff, stars and galaxies and stuff, you know, really to prove that he was powerful and strong. It just seems to me, the more I talk with atheists, that, that no matter what God did, you just, you, they can find some angle to like reject it. The rest of us will happily worship him when we take the trash out. Or, or any time of day. He's worthy. Amen. Well, Charlie, it's a fact that humans are the product of evolution. Of course, when it comes to the evolution of humans, atheists commonly state that it is settled science and a proven fact. But this is certainly not the case. There are insurmountable problems with the theory of human evolution. I can't get into them uh, this morning. But one fatal blow to the theory of human evolution that I think Christians would be wise to um, become more familiar with is the fossil record. The fossil record, if evolution really is the explanation for all of life, the fossil record should show continuous and gradual changes from the bottom layer to the top layers, but it doesn't. It doesn't. Nearly all groups of animals appear in the fossil record suddenly, simultaneously with each other, fully developed and with absolutely no hint that they evolved from anything else. These facts are devastating to the theory of human evolution. And the so-called ape men fossils that have been put forth over the past century as evidence for human evolution have again and again turned out to be an embarrassment to evolutionists. Consider Piltdown men. In 1912, in the village of Piltdown, England, an amateur paleontologist found part of a human skull and part of an ape-like lower jaw with two teeth. Well, scientists hailed the discovery as a major missing evolutionary link between apes and humans. For 40 years, it was taught in schools as proof of human evolution until it was exposed as a colossal hoax. Forty years after the bones were put forth as evidence for human evolution, a team of scientists, not pastors, a team of scientists at the University of Oxford proved that the Piltdown skull belonged to a modern human and the jaw fragment belonged to a modern orangutan. It was also discovered that the jaw had been chemically treated to make it look like a fossil and its teeth had been deliberately filed down to make them look human. Piltdown man was a forgery. Sorry, kids. 40 years in the textbooks, Piltdown Man. But what about Neanderthal Man? The first human fossil described as a Neanderthal was discovered in 1856 in Neander Valley in Germany. School children again were taught for decades that Neanderthal Man was proof of human evolution. But now, with the help of DNA technology, we've learned that Neanderthals were just humans not ape men or ancestors of modern humans, just humans. How about Nebraska man? 
Nebraska man is depicted in this artistic propaganda from the time was based off a 1917 discovery of a single tooth in Nebraska. <laughs> Pretty incredible what they can draw for the textbooks and the magazines and scientific journals based off a single tooth, isn't it? Well, evolutionary scientists were certain that the tooth was from an ape man. It was loudly and proudly put forth, again, as proof of human evolution. Until years later, when it was proved to be the tooth of a pig. <laughs> what about Lucy? Unearthed in 1974 in Ethiopia, a collection of fossilized bones was boldly proclaimed as the ancestor of all humanity. In newspapers, textbooks, television shows, and in museums. But evolutionary researchers have more recently and quietly, as usual, concluded that she should no longer be considered a direct ancestor of humans. It's always a big, loud thing in the media when they find one of these discoveries. And I think, oh boy, here we go again. And give it 10 years, someone will disprove it. And then they disprove it, but it doesn't make the news headlines like it did the first time when it was discovered. There's an agenda. How about Ida? One more. In 2009, you probably heard about her. The press hailed the fossilized remains named Ida as the missing link in human evolution and the eighth wonder of the world. They're so bold with their, their claims. Every time I think, gosh, that's going to look so stupid in like 10 years. But they keep doing it. But, but Ida was more recently reclassified as a small-tailed extinct primate and ancestor, not of humans at all, they've discovered, but of lemurs. Oops. Friends, the fossil record has been and always will be an embarrassment to the theory of human evolution. And we know why, as Christians. You're not the product of millions of years of mutations and evolution. No, you were created by God. Your human body with its 206 bones, 600 plus muscles, and a heart that beats over 100,000 times a day as it pumps about 75 gallons of blood an hour through more than 60,000 miles of veins, arteries, and capillaries in your body shouts design from top to bottom. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. He knits you together, the Bible says, in your mother's womb. And he loves you. Isn't that a blessing to know? You're not some mindless or the product of some mindless process of mutations and some meaningless conglomeration of cells just wandering around on a purposeless planet. No, God created you. And he wants to have a relationship with you. All right, this next objection has become more popular recently on the internet. I, I doubt any of you have bumped into it yet. Maybe you have. Atheists and skeptics are saying this. If God exists, why won't he just heal and amputee? By restoring his limb, then we would all know he exists. Some atheists on the internet got together and decided that this would be the miracle that they would accept as sufficient proof for God's existence. But since putting forth the challenge, atheists have not yet witnessed an amputee have his limb restored. And so again, they are touting the fact, you know, according to them, that God must not exist. Well, question for you. Do you think if people reported that a man whose arm had been amputated had his arm miraculously restored in answer to a prayer that many atheists would repent and place their faith in Jesus? 
I have a hard time envisioning that. Think back to that night when Jesus was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And how he miraculously restored the missing ear of the high priest's servant. Did the people repent and believe in Jesus when they beheld the miracle? No, they continued arresting him. And led him away to be crucified the very next morning. How about the times Jesus raised dead people back to life? Those were greater miracles than restoring missing limbs. Surely everyone would repent and believe in Jesus after those astounding miracles, right? No. Those who hated Jesus concluded that his miracles were accomplished with the help of demonic powers. Matthew chapter 12 says. But what if Jesus empowered his followers to work miracles? Maybe people would believe in him then. Well, that's the very thing Jesus did with his first disciples. He sent them out to the world with the power to perform miracles. And according to the gospels in the book of Acts, God wrought many miracles through them. And they were subsequently beaten, imprisoned, and put to death by people who did not want to repent. People who want to continue in sin are always able to find an excuse to reject God. So miracles really aren't that effective at changing hearts or minds. They rarely produce the the results that atheists say that they would. Quoting Abraham, Jesus said these words in Luke chapter 16 verse 31. He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, Jesus says here, quoting Abraham, if they reject the written word of God, their hearts and minds aren't going to be changed by miraculous acts of God. Another objection we're hearing today concerns the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. Critics of Christianity point out that Jesus said to love people. Even your enemies. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Christians' rejection of homosexuals is downright hateful. Well, I think it's important to point out to people that we certainly do not hate or reject people who identify as homosexuals or lesbians. Many of us have a family member or a friend or a coworker who identify as such, and we love these people. The Christian view towards same-gender sexual behavior should not be viewed or understood to mean that Christians reject or hate the persons engaging in that behavior. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, my wife and I have five kids at home, and we view some of their behavior unfavorably. Um, as, as If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. And so occasionally I have to tell my kids, well, occasionally, almost daily, um, I have to tell my kids what you're doing is not pleasing to the Lord. What, what you're doing right now is not honoring to God. This is, this is not God's will for your life and how you're treating your siblings or what have you. Now, question for you. Does that mean I hate my kids? Of course not. I'm actually willing to tell them that because I love them. And I want to see them live a life that God can bless. That leads to joy and peace and the kind of life that will be a blessing to others. Disagreeing with a person over an activity does not equal hatred. People in our culture want you to think that. 
so that you'll endorse any kind of activity anybody wants to engage in at any time. Well, as Christians, we can't because God has declared certain activities to be wrong and sinful and not just homosexual activity. How about fornication and adultery? We disagree with those activities as well. Does that mean that we hate fornicators and adulterers? Of course not. We disagree with the people over that activity. So we distinguish between the person and the practice. It's only same gender sexual activity we're opposed to, not the persons engaging in that activity. We love those people. And the Bible instructs us to be kind to all. We're not to, we're not to hate these people. We're to be kind to them. But that doesn't mean that we need to endorse or approve of all of their activities. There's a warning, or more than one warning in the Bible to people that do that. Woe to those who call evil, evil activities, good. God doesn't want us doing that. And so that's why we can't endorse certain activities. Well, Charlie, Jesus never said a word about homosexual activity. If it was sinful or even important to God, he surely would have addressed it. Well, there are some problems with that view. First, the Gospels don't record any specific instruction of Jesus on a lot of things that we know to be wrong. Bestiality, rape, and incest, for example. Now, Jesus may have addressed those activities. The Gospels don't record for us every single thing Jesus ever said. But we don't take the lack of recorded instruction on these activities to mean that they must be okay. Because they're condemned elsewhere in the Bible. Secondly, Jesus affirmed the authority and trustworthiness of the Old Testament scriptures where homosexual activity is clearly condemned. Thirdly, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus explicitly reaffirmed the Genesis account of marriage as the one flesh, one union of one man and one woman. And fourthly, Jesus condemned the sin of pornea, a Greek word that encompassed every kind of sexual sin including homosexual behavior. Where so? Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, and Mark chapter 7, verse 21. So this objection that Jesus never addressed the topic of homosexuality falters as a means of justifying that activity. Well, Charlie, the Bible is oppressive and harmful to women. Well, if someone tells you this, you might ask the person, have you read the entire Bible? Or have you just picked up that line somewhere? Now, watch your tone. And, and if you can think of better wording, shoot me an email. Because I, I think this could be worded better. I, just, I, have, I haven't figured it out quite yet. But, and, and so I'm not encouraging you to be snarky here. We're not, we're not talking down in a condescending way ever to a non-Christian. Okay? So we're not saying, have you ever even read the Bible? No, just in love and in humility. Have you, have you read the Bible? If they say, yeah, you know, I've studied the Bible. Uh, and that's how I've come to my conclusion. That, that the Bible oppresses women. Well, then follow up with this question. What passages in the Bible did you find most oppressive? Let's talk about them. And see what the person says. I've been reading and studying the Bible since 1990. When I became a Christian. And after years of study, I can confidently assure anyone that the God of the Bible loves and cherishes women. And millions of women around the world who've studied the Bible even longer than me could testify to the same thing. That the God of the Bible loves and cherishes women. They've understood that the Bible says men and women are both made in the image of God. 
and are equally valuable and important to God. They've read Paul's instructions for husbands to love their wives even as Jesus loves them and is willing to lay down his life on the cross for their sins. They've read the passages where men are told to do nothing from selfishness and to even consider women to be more important than themselves. They've read about the wonderful friendships Jesus had with women like Mary and Martha and how he even healed several women in the gospel accounts. They've read about women like Ruth and Deborah, Priscilla and others who are portrayed in the Bible in a wonderful light. And they've understood that the Bible condemns activities that hurt women like physical and emotional abuse, adultery, abandoning one's wife and rape. Friends, as you would agree with me if you've studied the Bible, if the world would follow the teachings of Jesus more carefully, the world would be a much better place for women today. That's a fact. All right, this next objection has to do with wars and suffering. Atheists and skeptics commonly say that religions, Christianity included, are responsible for most of the world's wars, suffering, and atrocities. Well, unfortunately, religious terrorists, greedy televangelists, and child molesting priests have done some things that are terribly hurtful to people. But there are two things I think critics of Christianity overlook when they raise this particular objection. First, Jesus and his teachings are not to blame for the evils people commit. Anything evil or sinful a person does goes against Jesus' instructions. Jesus taught us to love people and to treat others the way we would like to be loved and treated. For example, in Matthew 7, verse 12, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. You want people to be friendly and kind and forgiving with you? Jesus says, well, then you be friendly and kind and forgiving with people. This is commonly called the golden rule. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus said to love your enemies even, not just your friends, but even your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Imagine how different the world might be today if more people followed the teachings of Jesus. So while religious people have caused some suffering, let's not lay any of the blame for the world's evils at Jesus' feet. A second thing commonly overlooked when people blame the world's suffering on religious people is that atheists and non-religious people have caused a lot of suffering as well. Richard Dawkins never points that out in his books. It's always the religious people causing all the problems. Well, well how about Joseph Stalin? Adolf Hitler and Mao Zedong, these three men with their armies murdered as many as 100 million people in just a few decades of the 20th century. That's far more than all the people that were put to death by religious people of any stripe over the past five centuries. So it just isn't true that religions are responsible for most of the world's wars and suffering, especially not Christianity. All right, allow me to respond to one last objection. If you're out sharing the gospel with people, it's not uncommon to hear someone say, you should stop trying to force your beliefs on people. Well, in response to that, I think it's pretty rare that Christians are out trying to force 
their beliefs on people. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the grave three days later, he told his followers to share the good news with the whole world. So that's really all we're trying to do. We're not trying to force people to believe. We're simply explaining God's gracious offer of forgiveness and everlasting life. We believe that it's news that's too good to keep to ourselves. If someone had the cure for a deadly disease and kept it to himself, people would consider it a crime. Well, the good news about Jesus is better than the cure for the deadliest disease. That's why Christians are trying to get the gospel out. Because of Jesus' death in your place, for your sins, God is now offering forgiveness of your sins and everlasting life as a free gift to any and all who will repent and place their faith in Jesus. What a gracious offer God has made humanity. We deserve judgment and condemnation and hell. But God says, actually, I've got something way better over here. (laughs) The free gift of everlasting life, the forgiveness of all your sins, and peace with God. Reconciliation with your maker. What an offer. What a gift God has made. How do you lay hold of that gift? Well, Jesus already did all the hard work. So God just wants you now to place your faith in Jesus. And you can do that today. God is a prayer away. You can call out to him this morning and say, God, forgive me for my sins. I trust in Jesus Christ to save me. Come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. If you'll do that, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not might be saved. Not hopefully it'll work out someday. (laughs) No. If you'll call upon the Lord and place your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. It's an act of faith and it's a free gift. So I encourage you to do that today if you still need to go right with God. For the rest of you who have already done that, as I know most of you have, may the God of heaven and earth empower and embolden you to get the gospel out and when necessary to contend earnestly for the faith as we're told to do in Jude, verse 3. Amen? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.